there's a um, an intertextual fabric or tapestry here that's essential. And all of that, of course, is impossible apart from, from census plenier. And of course, this leads into discussions of typology as well. I honestly don't know how we can even affirm typology, let alone the discipline of biblical theology across the whole canon apart from census plenier. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, Executive Editor of Credo Magazine and Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. Usually, you have Dr. Matthew Barrett as your host, but today I am hopping in his seat. Uh, my name is Brandon Smith. I'm Assistant Professor of Theology and New Testament at Cedarville University and the host of the Church Grammar Podcast. And I am interviewing uh, Dr. Barrett today about his new book, Canon, Covenant, and Christology. So we'll talk through ideas of biblical theology, how that relates to dogmatics, and how we can think through the way that Christ talks about himself and how to interpret the scriptures through him. All right, I am joined here by Matthew Barrett. Matt, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I wanted to uh, primarily talk to you about your new book, Canon, Covenant, and Christology. Uh, really appreciated what you did there. Uh, two things that I love are the uh, blending of biblical theology and dogmatics and uh, census plenier. Those are two things that, I, that I'm a big fan of that you uh, hit on a lot in this book. So I just appreciated um, not just the content, but even just the methodology behind it. So I thought that'd be fun uh, to talk about today. Um, but before we talk about that, I think we need to talk about something that is only slightly less important, which is NBA basketball. So um, you're a Lakers fan and I'm a Mavericks fan. So there's no real, um, you know, uh, blood rivalry or anything like that between us, uh, primarily because your franchise is historic and, and uh, mine was the losingest professional franchise of the <laughs> 90s of all four major sports. Uh, that's what I got to grow up on. Uh, but yeah. my uh, one of my earliest memories is, is Kobe uh, is one of my favorite players ever. He's, he's number two behind Dirk for me. And I went to a Mavericks game. It had to have been about 2000 or 2001. My dad took me to a Mavericks game and I was super excited. And he was like, hey, I'll buy you a jersey, $100, like, you know, the nice, uh, legit NBA jersey. Which one do you want? And I went to the, to the uh, little shop there and picked out a Kobe uh, Bryant number eight jersey. <laughs> and my dad was mortified. I remember distinctly him being like, you want me to spend $100 on a non-Mavericks jersey? Is that what you're telling me right now? Uh, but I did. I ended up buying that jersey and actually ended up giving it away uh, much later and kind of wish I had it now in light of uh, his death and um, just what a legend he's turned out to be. So um, as, a, as a Lakers fan and Kobe's fan, I'm sure this has been a weird time for you between uh, Kobe passing away and then basketball stopping when your team is finally good again. So how's that felt? Yeah, it's. I think this has been a very strange, strange year, 2020. Um, as a basketball fan, uh, I just won't forget it. Obviously, with Kobe uh, passing away, my I, I uh, grew up in California, and I have uh, relatives who who are in Los Angeles. You you know you walk into their their. Uh, their living room or their den and uh it's gold and purple all the way through <laughs> with with jerseys and you know everything you can imagine um so to say uh you know 
I actually talk about this. Uh, I, I have a, another book coming out uh, on the Trinity. And uh, in one of the, the early chapters, I talk about the Lakers <laughs> as kind of a warm up to talk about, you know, the dream team of, you know, church history. <laughs> Great tradition. Uh, but I use I use the Lakers, of course. I'm a bit biased, but I use the Lakers to introduce, you know, to to get there. And I, I talk about uh, my own family heritage, uh, which goes back. I mean, my <clears throat> my uh, I not only have you know tons of relatives in Los Angeles still, constantly uh, you know sending me messages about you know the latest going on with the Lakers and or the drama. Yeah, um, that's right. But uh, I, my my dad and my uncle, who are twins, uh, they uh, grew up in the Jerry West days when, you know, Mr. Clutch himself used to play and they would sit right there on the court. This is back in the days when, you know, you know, kids could do this sort of thing. Um, they would sit right there on the court and um, I need to ask them, I, sh- I need to ask them whether <clears throat> they act- they were at any of the games when he made some of those clutch shots. I, I don't know. But so anyway, all that to say, yes, it, it runs in my blood. Um, this year has been unprecedented, of course, because uh, Kobe suddenly died. My wife and I actually got married in Malibu. Uh, I mean, I don't think it's more than a mile from where his helicopter crashed. Wow. So when it came on TV, we, my wife and I were sitting there and we immediately recognized it and just couldn't believe it. Wow. And then when we saw it was Kobe, I just thought, oh, this is, this is unbelievable. So it's, that's been a big hit. And then the season ending with, with the, the virus spreading, it's just been a bad year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I, my, our community group decided we were gonna uh, we were gonna fast from something for 24 hours before our next community group meeting. So it was like whatever you know, and we decided to fast from technology on the Saturday to Sunday, and so I didn't have my cell phone for the for 24 hours at all. And uh, so he, you know, the news starts coming out like late Sunday morning and I get my phone at 5 p.m. on Sunday and I've got like 45 texts in like my two, you know, group texts, sports group texts. And, uh, you know, on the one hand, I was thankful to fast for the Lord, but also it was kind of sad that I missed out on six hours of like the biggest sports moment of maybe the last uh, 20 years. And I'm like trying to catch up. And it was like, you know, I saw people going, oh, one of his kids was on the flight or maybe three of them or maybe his whole family or maybe it's not true. Maybe they maybe it's fake. I got to watch like all of that in my friend's text messages and then was like on the other end of it. So it was a really weird sensation to kind of not be in the middle of the news cycle, then see it kind of all, you know, six hours later when it starts coming together. That's right. Yeah. And, and stranger still that after he dies and the Lakers look like they, they may have a shot, you know, for, um, you know, the championship, the season gets canceled or postponed. We'll see. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe they'll bring the playoffs back. They're, they're pretending. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. So, yeah, well, I'm, you know, being a Mavericks fan, I've, I've been in the, in the dumps of a rebuild for a little while and I was really excited about, you know, Luca's playing out of his mind and the Mavericks were more than likely going to make the playoffs too. And it's like, they're not going to do much, but it'd just be fun to actually watch a Mavericks playoff game again for the first time. Uh, basically they won the championship and then blew the team up and, uh, you know, that was it. So we got, we got that one victory and I got to watch the Mavericks win the championship, uh, on the second or the first day of my honeymoon, uh, on the boat leaving, uh, New Orleans. And so I was like, I got married and got a Mavericks championship in, in two well, days. You see, see, we have a lot we can relate to, 
here with one another. I, I'm I'm just tickled to hear that because uh, my son Charlie, this was when we uh, our family was still living in Los Angeles. Um, he was born. And uh, that that night we're in the hospital and the Lakers game comes on in the, you know, in the hospital room. My wife's just had a baby and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, focus on the family. (laughs) She says, she says to me, listen, let's just go get a pizza, go get a pizza and bring it back. And let's just watch this Lakers game. So one of the greatest days of my life, my son was born <laughs> and my wife uh, was the one to say, let's let's get a pizza and watch the game at the same time. So <laughs> yeah, more precious than rubies, man. That's the kind of wife you have for sure. Yeah, yeah my wife was the same way. We got to, I got to stop everything on the first night of our honeymoon and watch the entire uh, Mavericks game. And my, uh, you know, my best friend and I, you know, we went we went to every playoff game at Buffalo Wild Wings for like seven years and it had been become a tradition and we watched them lose and get their hearts broken. <laughs> and uh, we didn't get to watch it together. But I called him on my cell phone on the way out of the port of New Orleans. And it was like the the the, the uh, reception was just bad enough where we we're like, oh, oh yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, you know, just yelling and it's cutting out and we can barely hear each other. But we're yeah. both just yelling in complete joy. And then I lost yeah. phone service like 10 minutes later. So it was perfect. <laughs> Uh, but the other thing that we have uh, a little bit in common, you know, speaking of the Heat Mavericks uh, heartbreak, is that neither of us are big fans of LeBron. I may like LeBron a little bit more than you do. I'm not sure. But um, you've not uh, given him the warmest reception as a Lakers fan, from what I understand. So, well, you know, if if you had, you know, one of your, you know, worst days with, you know, missing the whole Kobe in uh, you know his death when you're fasting from the technology <laughs> I have a similar story because um, I wasn't paying you know I was, wasn't paying much attention when uh, the Lakers decided to sign LeBron and then I you know checked back in and I just couldn't believe it yeah <laughs> <laughs> I um, I've never been a huge LeBron fan Um I, I know a lot of people are are big LeBron James fans. For me, it, it, it's the the man is you know obviously an incredible athlete and a spectacular uh, basketball player. But I've never I've never liked him uh, in part because of his um, his style, just in terms of you know complaining and whining and and all that yeah, sort of thing. He's never committed a foul, that's for sure. He's never committed a foul. You know, put that on the books. Um, <laughs> And uh, in, in part because of the teams he was playing for, so I always just rooted against him. So when he signed with the <laughs> Lakers, it's been ever since it's been just a. Uh, I, I feel a little bit uh, at odds with myself. I'm I'm wanting to to root for the Lakers, but the same, same <laughs> time, uh, just seeing LeBron in a in in that gold uniform, I just can't get used yeah, to that's it. Very weird. <laughs> Yeah, I, I guess I have the I have the benefit of Dwayne Wade is the real uh, villain of the Mavericks mm-hmm. because the Mavericks were clearly uh, ripped out of a championship by the referees uh, on account of Dwayne Wade, and then LeBron joined the Heat. We just we beat the Heat, and LeBron was terrible in that series, and so um, so my animosity is not quite as strong as it is for Dwayne Wade. But yeah. Um, yeah. if he had joined the Mavericks, I think I would have felt that uh, elation, <laughs> while also the kind of weird like I guess I have to like him more now. Yeah. So yeah, but if I'm he trying. Wins a championship, you'll be fine. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really trying. I'm really trying. We, my, my sister got married recently and at her, uh, at the reception, uh, pretty much the whole time it was just me 
debating with my my other my other relatives over whether or not we accept LeBron James. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's uh, it's it's hard as I mean, I think it, you know, I'm not a Lakers fan, but I. I know enough about the NBA to know that it's hard uh, for Lakers fans. You know, you've got Jerry West, you've got Kobe, you've got some of these, you know, Magic and uh, LeBron's not kind of one of your own. You know, those guys were kind of homebred, one of your own and LeBron's sort of the mercenary who comes in. So it's a little different time. That's right. That's right. It is. It is. Thank you for for reassuring me. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, let's talk about let's talk about the book here. We spent a solid uh, 10 minutes here talking about sports, which, you know, some days I wish I had a sports podcast and not a theology podcast for these reasons, but I'm glad we could, glad we could start it out that way. So, uh, so Canon Covenant and Christology sort of had this, uh, concept or, or structure here for talking about, uh, Jesus and the scriptures of Israel. And like I said, you do a lot of work with, uh, dogmatics and biblical theology kind of coming together. And in fact, you speak very clearly multiple times in the book about how you want those three things to go together and kind of the benefit of, of having a dogmatic approach to this idea of Jesus fulfilling the scripture. So why don't you talk through a little bit that sort of kind of big picture idea of what you're doing in this book? Yeah, uh, you, you're exactly right. Um, it, there's more or less uh, an underlying motive here. Um, and I hope to write more on this in the future. In this book, I, I really just kind of touch on it barely. But um, the underlying motive is that uh, biblical theology and dogmatics are, are not enemies. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this book, obviously, it's in the New Studies in Biblical Theology series. So naturally, you know, the, the majority of attention uh, needs to go to biblical theology. But I tried to show at the beginning and then again at the end that um, our, uh, our systematic theology is actually uh, crucial um, not just to the discipline of biblical theology, though it is, and not just to our approach to Scripture, our exegesis, which might surprise some people to hear that. Uh, I do think uh, systematics and, and dogmatics in particular is is very essential to the exegetical task. It's not something to, to put off to the very end of the process. Um, but it's also essential if we are going to walk away with an understanding of Scripture that um, that is Christian, or, or maybe I could put it this way: it's it's essential if we are even going to approach the Scriptures as if they are Christian Scriptures. Uh, and so, there's there's so many ways uh, to skin this cat, but in this book, I try to show that our understanding of the canon as a whole, especially its covenantal character and its Christological fulfillment, uh, all of this, you know, and this is really the the DNA of our Christian doctrine of of Scripture, all of this presupposes that we are approaching the canon in the first place um, with the right um, dogmatic presuppositions. Uh, what now? What might those be? Well, there's many, but at the very top of the list, I would say is that God Himself, our Triune God, has not only inspired the text or the end product that we now have in our hands, but His divine authorial intent is embedded throughout, um, and uh, that assumes that 
the canon doesn't just drop down from heaven, though sometimes we might talk that way. Uh, actually, it's it's revealed progressively. Uh, it comes to us in the context of uh, covenants from Adam to Abraham to Moses to David, and then most ultimately the new covenant in Jesus Christ. And so uh, it's not as though and sometimes I think as evangelicals, we we tend to approach Scripture this way. We kind of sign the, the inspiration, you know, doctrinal checklist. But then when we approach the text, we, we sort of get deistic uh, as if God just steps back. And, and now we have to, in our exegesis, now we got to really focus on the human author. Yeah. And so I push against that. And, and I and I argue that, no, the divine author is is uh, not not just the, the script writer, but he's the main um, actor on the stage. And he's ensuring from beginning to end that his plan of salvation is working itself out. And he is uh, embedding within that story. Uh, his, his fingerprints are ev- everywhere so that you have things like types and anti-types uh, you have things uh, like uh, progressive revelation um, or de- or census plenier, which we can talk about later. All of this, in other words, assumes um, that the divine author is active and that uh, his revelation is escalating more and more, most ultimately in Jesus Christ, his own son. Okay, so you're touching on it a little bit here, but what is the kind of relationship between canon, covenant, and Christology? So how are you pulling those things together uh, explicitly in sort of the method and explanation you're doing uh, in this book? Yeah, so uh, early on in the book, um, I have a chapter on the Old Testament. And I argue that, it's, you know, where do we see the canon showing up in the story of Israel. Well, it comes to us more often than not through the context of, of different covenants. So you think, for example, of Sinai. Um, I, I, I'm indebted here to someone like Meredith Klein, um, who has some, some great insight as to uh, when, you know, when Israel is liberated from Egypt, Moses, uh, as the mediator brings them to the base of Sinai. Uh, God, God then reveals himself to his people um, in what we now call the law or the 10 words uh, in Hebrew. But he does that uh, through uh, establishing his covenant with them. And I would argue uh, this, isn't, this isn't new with Israel. This goes back to Adam and Abraham as well. Um, in other words, the, the point is, uh, when Israel receives God's word, and when that word is then inscripturated, uh, Exodus uses some astounding language. You'll say things like, uh, God writes with his own finger. Mm-hmm. Well, when that word is then inscripturated for Israel, so that God's covenant people walk in the way of the covenant with God, um, the canon is given a very prominent place in the life of God's people. Even physically, it's given a sacred uh, place as it's um, situated in and around the ark, uh, as it then um, 
it then becomes the medium through which um, God's people know how to live and obey him. Uh, as one author said, it, it essentially becomes, you know, to use some of our contemporary language, it essentially becomes the, the canon becomes the constitution of the covenant. Now, um, uh, Gerhardus Voss, he put it a little differently. Uh, he talked about uh, God uh, revealing himself through redemption and God redeeming his people through his revelation. Um, so revelation as a whole isn't limited to redemption, but it certainly, um, in terms of special revelation, it certainly comes to us in that form. All that to say, as God redeems his people through his covenants, um, he reveals who he is, he reveals uh, what he will do. And, and then when he acts on that covenantal word, he doesn't then leave it open for interpretation. He then follows up on his covenantal acts with his interpretation, his own uh, divine, divine interpretation. All of that comes to a culmination in Christ, uh, in which everything before points towards uh, the fulfillment of these covenants in Jesus Christ himself. And uh, the canon as a whole then points forward and is fulfilled, uh, as Jesus himself says, in his own life, death and resurrection. So when we come to Christology, and there's a lot to say there, but when we come to the person and work of Christ, who he is, what he says and what he does brings uh, God's covenant promises to fulfillment and, of course, the story continues as he then uh, passes his word on to his own disciples, as his word is then inscripturated and the canon is then brought uh, to its, its uh, ultimate fulfillment. And so when I teach uh, students on this, one of the things I like to bring up a lot is that one of Jesus' uh, favorite phrases, particularly when he's talking to uh, Pharisees or religious leaders, is, you know, have you not read the scriptures? Or you are a teacher yeah. of the scriptures. How do you not know this? So how do you, how do you talk through or, or make that comparison between Jesus as the, you know, enfleshed word of God and also scripture being the word of God and sort of them being this complementary and not competitive ideas, yeah. you know, because he's clearly pointing to the fact that these were talking about me. And even at times, uh, this might this might be not the quite the right way to say it, but there's a sense in which he uses the authority of the Hebrew scriptures to make the point about his own authority, right? So he's saying my authority and their authority are reciprocal with one another. So how do you talk through some of that? Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, no, I think you're exactly right to make that point with your students. It's a, it's a very important one. Uh, a couple things. Uh, when we come to the Gospels, which is really what my book focuses on, um, the, the heart of it is not on Paul's epistles or Peter's epistles, but on the Gospels. And even then, you know, I, I only had so much room, so I have to. I had to focus on Matthew and John. Otherwise, the book would have been twice as long. But, uh, anyways, when we come to the Gospels. Uh, we see that Jesus, number one, Jesus uh, is constantly quoting the scriptures as if uh, those very scriptures uh, are now being fulfilled in what he is saying and what he is about to do. Mm -hmm. That alone um, is baffling, puzzling, infuriating at times to the 
to the religious leaders when they catch on to it. But it's also very revealing. Uh, the, the second thing I, I would say, it's not just what Jesus says, but also what he does, which is all the more uh, shocking. Uh, and you, you sort of hinted at this a minute ago. Uh, Jesus comes to us as the eternal son of God incarnate, which itself is, is a miracle that we are still trying to wrap our heads around. Uh, but as the Gospels, and, and of course Paul will emphasize this, he, he humbles himself in order to accomplish our salvation. And as he does that, um, his by means of his own righteous obedience, he is adhering to the very scriptures in order to bring them to fulfillment. Uh, and he's doing this uh, not for his sake, but for our sake, uh, in order to to provide us with that perfect, spotless obedience to the law that, that we have failed uh, to accomplish, that, that righteousness that is then imputed to us. Well, assumed in, in his perfect life um, is, is this startling reality that um, he is adhering to the very scriptures. That says, that says volumes about what he thinks the scriptures are. And then at the same time, and this is where it's, it, it, there's mystery here, at the same time, those uh, same scriptures spoke of him, and, and there's a sense in which, um, in, in terms of chronology, and fulfillment, he is superseding them as he is living, dying, and resurrecting. Mm -hmm. um, in a sense, he he is bringing them to their their finality um, in in his own christological fulfillment. Um, there's a lot more to say. I mean, I I think I could even add to that. Uh, it's not just what he says, what he does, but who he is um, as the eternal Son of God. If, if he really is who he says he is, um, then that not only says something about what he believes the scriptures are to begin with, but what he thinks about his own his own word that he is then uh, delivering to his people. Yeah, I think that's where um, where you have a lot of helpful discussions here. You talk uh, in the chapter on John, for example. Um, you know the or yeah the Jonian witness this idea that that he's the uh, he has this trinitarian origin right so his equality with the father is what gives him this authority and that sort of just yeah like you said it's this mystery this back and forth relationship between he is fulfilling the very scriptures that he himself uh yeah. spoke or inspired or whatever you want to say you know and so yeah. there's this there's this back and forth there and you know that's that's kind of um the really, I think the really helpful underlying methodology you have here is you continue to go back to this idea, uh, as you said there at the end about who he is and how much that influences how we view scripture. And even in a bigger uh, conversation is the senseless plenier conversation that we've hinted at, right? This idea that we care about authorial intent and we care about what Moses was saying and what uh, the other writers were saying and what they, what their point was and the, con the context and all those kind of things. Those are all great. But as you said, we tend to at some point check our divine author uh, at the door. And I tell, you know, sometimes I run into with my students, there's, there's the one extreme of, uh, I kind of joke that they think the divine author or the, the human authors were on like a divine acid trip and they don't have any personality and they're kind of just like, you know, just kind of scribbling down yeah. words. Um, yeah. and they have no, uh, there are no intention. And when Paul says, Hey, say hello to my friends, he really means say hello to my friends. Right. But there's yeah. this other side of, 
Moses doesn't, Moses is writing things and Moses has this revelation from God. And yet there is this bigger picture that the divine author is painting that maybe yeah. even Moses is not fully aware of, right? Or that even the, the those who are reading Israel scriptures can't make sense of until Jesus shows up and they're like, oh, that's him. That's the one that's talking about. He's fulfilling this. He's doing that. So how do you think through that kind of balance of we care about authorial intent and, and you know, historical grammatical has its place in understanding scripture to a certain extent, but it's certainly not the central uh, or even the end of hermeneutics. So how do you talk through uh, some of those things and that relationship between them? Yeah, I think a lot of people, scholars included, start to get nervous at this point. Uh, they they start to worry that, uh, well, if we if we start emphasizing the divine author, let alone the divine author uh, doing something or knowing something or having a deeper, uh, fuller sense to what the human author is saying, then we're going to lose um, the integrity of the human author. And so out of that, uh, out of that fear, there can tend to be a clamping down uh, to, to say, well, when we're looking at the text, we have to just focus on the human author, uh, the historical grammatical tools that are available to us. Uh, we don't want, um, you know, they'll say, well, we don't want to, uh, in, you know, start imposing, you know, later texts or their meaning back into earlier texts. Uh, some might even go so far as, as to say, you know, we don't want to get theological. Uh, we don't want theology to, to somehow uh, influence or, or even not, not just systematic theology, but let's say the theology of a later author to come back and influence our interpretation of, a, of an early author. Now, I think um, in response, uh, certainly, absolutely, we should make sure that we are doing justice to what the human author is uh, experiencing, uh, what the human author is understanding, uh, um, historical, grammatical uh, background. Um, these are all, you know, th that is essential uh, anytime you are exegeting a text, preparing a sermon, um, all that those tools are very essential to the task. Um, but that's not the end of the story. <laughs> In fact, if we end there, um, I, I fear that our interpretation to Scripture, our, our interpretation of Scripture and our approach to Scripture is not all that different from some of the higher critical methods that came out of the Enlightenment period or were even practiced by Protestant liberals. That may sound um, odd, uh, maybe ironic, but I think it is ironic because in, in all of our effort to avoid, say, Protestant liberalism, um, I sometimes see the way that, you know, someone's interpreting a text and evangelicals interpreting a text or approaching the text. And uh, the, while the doctrinal conclusions drawn may be very different, the, the method is almost identical. Now, all that to say, I think um, if we really do believe uh, in the divine author, um, then we, we can't just limit ourselves, say, to historical grammatical exegesis. Uh, we have to pay attention um, 
to what the divine author is doing, not just in any particular text, but across a whole book, across a whole testament, and even across a whole canon. Otherwise, we are pretending as if the divine author um, uh, is is essentially uh, not at work at each stage in redemptive history. Now, now that said, I, and you hinted at this a moment ago with census plenier. I think census plenier is is basic to this task, and it's almost surprising that it's even controversial, right? Um, uh, because this is this is. God we are talking about. So of course, of course, he he has more in view than any single human author could possibly understand at any any moment or or even within their immediate context. That's not to say that, you know, there's this secret hidden meaning that contradicts what the human author is saying. No, we're not saying that. Um, we, we don't we don't want to run in, into that direction. But at the same time, you know, whatever a, a Moses or a Jeremiah um, um, or, or an Ezekiel, you know, for how much they understand, and, and perhaps they understand far more than we give them credit for. So let's acknowledge that. Yeah, probably so. Probably so, right? But at the same time, it shouldn't surprise us that the divine author is is doing much more um than the human author may know in that moment. And sometimes you even see it in the storyline as later on that same human author, <laughs> as, as the story continues, um, comes into a fuller understanding of what God was doing earlier. Um, now, all that to say, this isn't just a matter of, say, reading the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. Uh, it's also a matter of reading the Old Testament in light of the Old Testament. So when you come to the prophets, for example, there's good reason why they are understanding uh, their own times in light of what has come before them. Uh, they, they, there's a, um, an intertextual fabric or tapestry here uh, that's essential. And all of that, of course, is impossible apart from, from census plenier. And, of course, this leads into discussions of typology as well. I honestly don't know how we can even affirm typology, let alone the discipline of biblical theology across the whole canon, apart from census plenier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you, you hit on something there that I, I've run into is, you know, census plenier must mean allegory detached from the text, uh, special revelation, special knowledge, uh, you know, just getting uh, fast and loose with the text or reader response, you know, there's all these different kind of attacks on it. Uh, but really, yeah, the way I understand the way you do census plenier is basically the divine author is doing something bigger than what the human authors are doing. While at the same time, clearly if he's inspiring the text, if second Peter is right, that the spirit was the one who, who inspired the prophets and inspired the writings, then there is no distinction between the two. They're, they're two different levels or complementary uh, pieces of the same puzzle. And I wanted to read a quote um, from page 293 in your book that I thought was really helpful. Um, the Christian canon of scripture consists first and foremost, to borrow Jesus's own framework, which I think is important, right? Jesus's own framework yeah. for interpretive method of Moses and the prophets in the Psalms. On that foundation, the apostles and the rest of the New Testament authors stand. The link between the two, however, is Jesus Christ as represented in the gospels. He is the Christological clamp. He claims that the scripture spoke of him and claims to fulfill what the scriptures promised in him. If mistaken, 
invalid or fraudulent, then his works and words mean the witness of Moses and the prophets is antiquated messianic uh, anticipation at best or empty promises built on faulty religious logic at worst. I mean, I think that's such a good kind of encompassing of this idea of what is biblical theology. Ultimately, it's the idea that Christ is making sense of the Bible, right? That he is the core. And if he's not who he says he is, then the Jews who basically say that he's not really the Messiah are right, right? That these New Testament authors were wrong. I think this is something I love that Athanasius brings up in, on the incarnation when he's, um, you know, arguing with the Jews. He's basically saying it is, should be plain to you by now, by his works and words and who he is, that he is the person they were all talking about. And if you miss that, then you're in a false religion and you're basically in idolatry now. So that's my that's my mini sermon on your mini sermon. Yeah. But yeah, no, that's a that's a good sermon. Preach it. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I I think you're exactly right. Uh, another way of looking at this, and I I um I think it's if I remember right, towards the um the the end of the chapter on the Old Testament, and then again, the chapter at the end of the chapter on the Gospel of John, uh, I make this point, uh, and I and I argue that. Um, eschatology is really pertinent at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if we, we ask, well, what is the difference between how the, some of the Jewish religious leaders um, were understand the canon and how Jesus is understanding the canon? Uh, I think it has to do with, with eschatology. Um, and what I mean by that is uh, they had a, a faulty eschatology. Uh, and, and Jesus, uh, on the other hand, understands uh who he is and what he says and what he's doing, what he's accomplishing and fulfilling, all of that is uh, bringing to fulfillment everything that the divine author um, had prefigured mm -hmm. prior to that point. So it's a matter of right eschatology. And of course, the canon comes into this as well. Um, uh, all that to say, you, you take something like typology, um, whether it's um, uh the sacrificial system, the temple or tabernacle, tabernacle, uh, whether it's offices like, um, prophet, priest, or king, or even, um, titles. You think of, uh, the, the different titles, the gospels attribute to Jesus, Davidic titles. Um, what are all these types? What, I mean, what, what's happening? Why are the gospels so stressing in all kinds of colorful and very different ways. Why are they stressing the fulfillment of all these types? Well, uh, it's because they are assuming that um, everything that God had previously said is now being brought to fruition in his very own son. And of yep. course, this explodes with the gospel of John, right? Mm -hmm. In which John opens his gospel and says, this is the word. <laughs> um, and, and he's not, he not only was with God, he was God. And now, uh, as, as the eternal word of God, he is, um, stepping down from the heavens, so to speak, uh, as the very son himself in order to reveal the father to us. So, um, the, the gospels, I mean, whether that's John's gospel, you go to Matthew's gospel, Matthew says the same thing in a very different way as he brings out this fulfillment, this famous uh, fulfillment thing, right? And uh, I mean, how, again and again and again, Matthew will explicitly tell his readers uh, and his listeners, this happened, or Jesus said this to fulfill the scriptures. Yeah. 
Uh, that not only says something about Matthew's view of the canon, but it, uh, you know, more to the point, it says something about how Matthew understands Christology um, in light of the canon. We could go on uh, to, to Mark and Luke as well. Um, the beauty of the Gospels is that they bring typology to light and, and show, and they let it glisten and shine in, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and they do it in, in diverse ways. So, sometimes they're explicit like Matthew. Uh, other times they're using metaphors. You know, Jesus himself is using metaphors in a gospel like John's. So what would be some kind of final tips you would give to somebody who's reading scripture who's saying, okay, I get it. I get that Christ is the center of scripture. I get that the, you know, the prophets and Moses were speaking of him, as he says in, in the gospel of Luke. Um, what do I actually do if I'm sitting down and reading my Bible? How do I develop this sort of intuitive sense uh, to think through these things. Cause clearly, like you said, the new Testament authors are telling you to do it. Uh, and in fact, at times Moses is very self-referential where he's telling you to do it even within his own canon at times, right. Or even within the Torah and, and pointing back and pointing back and pointing back to these covenants. So how does somebody go from, okay, I acknowledge this to actually uh, doing something about it. Well, I think the, the first thing I, I like to say is don't overcomplicate it. Mm, yeah. um, there are, hundreds, thousands of books on hermeneutics being published. And it can feel overwhelming. Um, I think for a lot of pastors, for example, even for scholars, it, it's just a mountain to climb. Um, so my, my first word is, is don't overcomplicate it. When you come to the scriptures, uh, it unveils itself. Now, uh, part of what I mean here is you, you take typology, for example, um, it's not as if we have to somehow create uh, these extra hermeneutical theories, like, say, typology, to somehow make sense of, of all of this, to, to somehow make the Old Testament uh, look the way the apostles think it looks, right? I would argue, no, 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 that's not what's happening. Um, typology itself is revelation. Uh, it's not as if the apostle, you know, like you were mentioning earlier, you know, sometimes we'll approach the apostles and just think, you know, goodness, where are they getting this from? And this is bogus and crazy. And, you know, who would this, this type of hermeneutical approach is just out of this world. Yeah. Um, uh, no, what, what's actually happening is they are, their eyes are being opened to God's revelation and the, the very types in the old Testament, those are part of that revelation. It's not just like a hermeneutical theory or, or bogus practice that they're utilizing. No, they're just recognizing it. To put it very simply, they're just recognizing those types for what they now for what they were and what they now are in light of their fulfillment in Christ. Mm-hmm. Now, I guess the second thing I would say is, um, if if all that is just still a bit baffling, just go to the Gospels. Go to, you know, Luke's sequel, so to speak, in, in the book of Acts and just watch them, watch them. Um, I mean, Peter's a great example of this, right? I mean, early on, you look at Peter and, it, and it's like, OK, he gets it. No, he doesn't get it. OK, he gets it. No, he doesn't get it. You just want to shake him, you know. Well, we know the end of the story, of course. You know, Peter's Peter's like trying to figure this out in the moment. By the time you get, you know, to the opening of the book of Acts after Christ has ascended into the heavens, Peter gets it and his eyes are opened and you watch 
the sermons he preaches. How does he treat the Old Testament? He reads the Old Testament how Christ reads the Old Testament. Yeah. And so you're going to see Peter imitating and mimicking basically what Jesus said as he's quoting the Old Testament. So all that to say, I think, uh, don't be overwhelmed <laughs> and, and then look to concrete examples. I think you'll find yourself you know, thinking, okay, this actually um, is not as hard as I thought. And, and it's explicit right there in, in the opening of the New Testament. Yeah, I love that you you point out, you know, this is the apostles kind of following Christ. It's that old joke of uh, the apostles would have failed my hermeneutics class. And I was like, that's a, yeah. that, that's a problem with your hermeneutics class, not with the apostles. Right? Uh, that's exactly right. It seems like they were following Jesus. So I think that's probably a good place to, to start. So, all right. Well, Matt, thank you so much for hopping on with me today. Really enjoyed the conversation. And uh, maybe we can do it again sometime when one of your Trinity books comes out, because that's the other thing I love to talk about. So we'll find some space for that sometime. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcast to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.